Will you join me in prayer as we get ready to hear God's word for us today? Uh, Lord, the words we have just sung, uh, let those sink deeply into our spirits, even though the words of your book, the scriptures, were written thousands of years ago. Make them alive and fresh and real and applicable for us in this place today and for your church all over the world on the Sabbath day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we take the Word of God seriously around here. Um, and there's this phrase, perhaps if you've been around church for a while, you've heard it. God said it, I believe it. Have you heard this phrase? Maybe? It's on Christian radio from time to time. If you pay attention to that, God said it, I believe it. And while we believe in the Word of God, um, you have to be a little careful with this phrase. Because what we have in the Scriptures are written words, and lots of times in the Bible, um, what we lack is tone of voice or mood or motivation. For example, the words, happy birthday, seem like wonderful words, right? And if you come into work or school and somebody's like, happy birthday, it's your birthday, we love you. Like, that's good, right? Right. But if you walk in, it's your birthday, and somebody's like, happy birthday. That might be bad, right? Or if even if they sing to you, happy birthday to you, that would be really bad. Same words, but what's the intention? Similarly, in the Bible, all over the place, God gave us 150 psalms. We have the lyrics and no music. God's genius, right? Because every new generation has to write new music. Even the little phrase all over the psalms, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. You can say, I will praise the Lord. Which can be great. It might even be naive at times. Versus, I will praise the Lord. Which in our darkest hour and in a time of trouble, we might need to say it that way. Know what I'm saying? Usually when we think of Jesus' words, maybe this is my own imaginative problem, I think of Jesus as very collected, very gentle, very wise. Maybe he was that way usually, but the words we're going to hear from him today, I think he did not speak in a very cool or collected or calm way. The scene we are going to read is from John chapter 14. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 14 happen on the night before Jesus' crucifixion in the upper room. And interestingly, in the Gospel of John, he says virtually nothing about the Last Supper, the first communion service. He talks about how Jesus got on the floor and washed his disciples' feet. He talks about how Judas leaves into the darkness to betray Jesus. And then in the midst of this moment, Jesus' last night, Jesus drops an absolute bombshell on his now 11 disciples. And he, is, in essence, says this. You all, we love each other, right? But I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And all the air is sucked out of this upper room. Now, as a parent, twice my wife Sarah and I have sat our kids down and said, we're moving. Across the country, back across the country, we're moving. These are awesome situations as parents. You know what I'm talking about. And then when you tell your kids this, especially if there hasn't been a big process 
uh, by which this decision is made, all the air goes out of the room and your kids are like, what? You're telling me I'm leaving my school, my friends, what? If you're a little bit older, a similar situation is when you go into a doctor's office and the doctor says, you have Parkinson's, or you have fill in the blank, and you feel all the air gets sucked out of your heart and you're wondering what is coming next? What does this mean? And in that upper room, this is what happened to the 11 disciples, which is why on your worship folder today, the name tag says, anxious. Because that is the spirit that pervaded this room. Jesus says, I'm leaving. And all of a sudden, there are 11 grown men who are fearful and scared and deeply, deeply anxious because what is going to come next? Now, as a parent who has done this to my children on multiple occasions, what comes next out of the parent's mouth is something like this. It's going to be okay. Which is a complete lie. <laughs> right? It's both true and it's a complete lie. Because in the short term, we don't know what's going to happen. Crazy stuff. It's going to be chaotic. It is not going to be okay. But as a parent, you also know that you are going to be with your children no matter what. And because we are going to be together, it is going to be okay. In essence, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Here's where the story is going to end today. Jesus says this to 11 anxious disciples and to 700 anxious people here today. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, I imagine Jesus does not say this calmly and collectedly, but Jesus says this with a quivering voice and maybe even with tears welling up in his eyes because Jesus does know what is coming and he does know how un-okay it is about to be. But he still says, it's going to be okay. Jesus' message is very similar to the one I've delivered as a parent to my kids. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be horrible. We're going to get through this, and it's going to be okay. Jesus' message to us in your life is, it's going to be crazy. It might be difficult. It could be outrageously painful. It's still going to be okay, and here's why. Because I'm with you. And because not only I'm with you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. Everything that comes out from here is unpacking these two truths, how Jesus himself and how the Holy Spirit remain with us as his disciples. So those of you who are curious minds might be thinking, now Jesus just said he was leaving. So how is he going to stay with the disciples? We've never hung out with Jesus face to face. How does this work? I'm very glad you asked. It's time to read the Bible. Uh, from John chapter 14, please follow along. These are the words of the Lord. Once again, if you can imagine him with a quivering voice in an unsettled and anxious room saying these things. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth. And the world cannot accept him. It neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. 
All this I have spoken while I'm still with you. But this advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he is going to teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Now, did you catch at the beginning of this that Jesus says he is sending another advocate, which means there are two, right? If there's another, there's already one. Jesus himself is the first advocate. Now, this word um, has been translated through the years in many different ways. If you grew up with the old King James Version, it's the word comforter, which is inserted here. Lots of modern translations use the word counselor or comforter here. Um, So it's not a counselor in a therapeutic sense. The original Greek word at this point I'm going to mention to you uh, is a word called paraclete, which is a word that's made it into a few old hymns. And this uh, English word is made up of two halves, the word para, which means alongside of, and the word, Greek word kletos, which means to call or to name or to guide someone. And FYI, if you type this into Microsoft Word, uh, it will likely spell check you into the word parakeet. <laughs> which is littered all over my manuscript today. It's really not bad for the Holy Spirit, who actually descended in bodily form as a dove on one occasion. You know what I'm saying? But I want to unpack this word paraclete. And if you can hang on to this meaning that it's someone who comes alongside and who comes to teach or guide or help or advocate for, which is why he's called the Advocate with a capital A. Now, in the ancient world, this sense of uh, being a paraclete or an advocate often uh, was applied in a legal sense, in the way legal counsel would come alongside and advocate for one. And in a sense, Jesus did this all the time for his disciples. He advocated for them against the insults and accusations and misunderstandings of the Pharisees. Jesus advocated for his disciples against uh, the power of sin and temptation and Satan himself. He did this very personally for Peter on multiple occasions. Jesus is their rabbi. He's their tutor. He is their advocate. But I'd like to... Focus in for just a moment on the way that Jesus is a legal advocate in terms of um, freeing us from sin as his disciples. So one of the things Jesus regularly did, he ran around saying things like, your sins are forgiven. What kind of person says stuff like that? Because when you say that, you're implying two things. Number one is, I have the power to forgive sins. And who would say that? And number two, this isn't very political and correct, but if you say your sins are forgiven, you're basically saying you are a sinner, which is not going to make you popular very quickly in this day and age either. Sin is not a great topic in American culture. It's increasingly impermissible even to say something like, hey, what you did there was wrong. This is crazy. Because all of us are actually thinking this in our heads pretty much every moment of the day. Hey, what you did there was wrong. I just spent a week uh, at a family reunion with my siblings. I must have thought 120 times, hey, what you did there, that was wrong. (laughs) Thank you. We We all are thinking this all the time. 
In his brilliant little book called Mere Christianity, uh, British author C.S. Lewis makes the case that every time we think, hey, what you did there was wrong, every time that thought turns into a disagreement or a little quarrel, that reality is based on the fact that deep down we believe in a standard, big capital S, of right and wrong. Once again, this is not a popular topic these days. We are always saying stuff like, hey, I was sitting there first. You need to move. Or we're saying stuff like, hey, I shared some of my pie with you yesterday. Give me a bite of your candy bar. Or we're saying stuff like, hey, you promised. So when are you going to follow through? Every time we think or say something this, I was sitting there, now you're sitting there, you should give me my seat back. We are appealing to kind of this big universal standard of right and wrong. We assume that everybody knows if I took a seat first, that seat belongs to me. Rarely will you find a person who says, if you take their seat, hey, you took my seat and that hurt my feelings. Right? Nobody says that. That would be a feelings-based thing. You took my seat and that, that makes me feel bad. It might be true, but it doesn't hold much water. But we say to the person who takes our seat, you took my seat, get out of there. Right? Because we believe that everyone, everywhere should know you don't take something that belongs to somebody else. You still following me? We're getting into kind of deep philosophical waters for just a moment. It's coming back to Jesus, though, I promise. So we believe in this thing, even if we don't talk about it much, called the moral law. Standards of right and wrong. And because of the freedom that God gave us in each of our hearts and spirits, we are always breaking these laws. We habitually are falling short of keeping them. Uh, in essence, there is something tragically wrong with every one of us. I, for example, if I can make my confession to you this morning, I confess to you, I am insufferably self-sufficient. Maybe you're thinking, ah, that doesn't sound so bad. You're like, we're Americans, we're supposed to be self-sufficient. I am so insufferably self-sufficient that at times I do my own thing to the expense of loving and being close to the people uh, that I live with. It's horrible. I am so self-sufficient that sometimes it cuts me off from being aware of how much I need God. It's ridiculous. Almost every dumb thing I do is because I am so insufferably self-sufficient. I have broken the moral law in a million ways because I think my way is the best. You sitting here today, you have your own problem. Some of you are also insufferably self-sufficient. Others of you have other issues. God bless you. Here's the good news. In response to the reality that all of us are all the time breaking the moral law, Jesus himself presents himself to his disciples as our advocate. When our little lives butt up against the universal standard of right and wrong, and it's clear that we are on the wrong side of the law that is written into the fabric of the universe, Jesus offers himself as our legal counsel. Now, like a good lawyer, Jesus doesn't enter into this moment uh, making up a case and crossing his fingers and, and hoping that there's going to be a good verdict. Jesus is an awesome advocate. 
Jesus is an awesome lawyer when it comes to the trial of right and wrong that all of us must stand before in front of the universal bar of justice. We are guilty of breaking the moral laws of the universe, and Jesus stands in that courtroom and makes the case that the price of our guilt has been paid by his perfect life and his sinless blood that was shed on the cross, and that all of our crimes and failures and shortcomings have already been paid. Jesus paid it all. Amen, anybody? Whatever consequences were due to us, whatever consequences should be on my head, Jesus absorbed them. And just like a really good trial lawyer stands in the place of um, his client and speaks for them and represents them almost to the point that their identity is absorbed in the lawyer's identity for the jury and the judge, our identity is absorbed into Jesus' identity This is why, friends, we pray to Jesus Christ for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, the ancient words, Kyrie eleison. We ask Jesus for mercy because he is the one advocating for us in the universal court of law. And he's the one paying the price. But we can actually ask God the Father, not for mercy, but for justice in Jesus' name. Now, this is a bold way to pray. God, give me what is coming to me for Jesus' sake. You hear what I'm saying here? God does not answer this prayer by making you healthy, wealthy, or wise. That is not what we deserve. But when you pray to God for justice in Jesus' name, God gives you forgiveness and mercy and kindness. He gives you everything that Jesus deserves because he paid the price. Now, unless you have experienced Jesus himself as an advocate for you in this way, as one who has absorbed you and taken your identity and taken your failures and crimes and sins and shortcomings and wiped them away with his blood, unless you have experienced Jesus as your first advocate, you will never experience the Holy Spirit as your second advocate. You hear me on this? And if you haven't received this today, come to the prayer team afterwards. Come talk to Reverie. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus, the first advocate. It's the best thing going on the planet. So Jesus promises that not only does he do this for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, but he is going to send a second advocate, the Holy Spirit to teach us, to tutor us, to come alongside us once again, to be our holy parakeet, or paraclete, right? He's going to be alongside us and with us. And this is the Holy Spirit's job. He is to live inside of us, and while Jesus speaks to the moral law, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, for us. He speaks inside of us, to us, for us. And the Holy Spirit, he doesn't yell inside of us. He doesn't clear his voice to get our intention. He often speaks in quiet and subtle ways, the whisper of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us. 
So if you've had even a tiny sense of that, if when we were singing the song, Jesus paid it all, if you had a tiny sense of that at that moment, it was the Holy Spirit inside of you. You are not smart enough or clever enough. It is the Holy Spirit turning on a little floodlight in your spirit to point to the cross and to point to Jesus. Now, our identity in Christ is quite simple, and it was beautifully illustrated by the water of baptism today. Here's our identity. We're messed up. There's something wrong with us. We're sinners. But that's only the very beginning of the story. Because Jesus is our first advocate, we are washed, and we are made new, and our spirits are clean in the presence of God, and we are free in Christ, and it is better than the best spa or pool or freshwater lake or shower after a hot, steamy, humid, sweaty day than you've ever had. The water of baptism is the power of God. It represents the power of God. Almost every time there's a baptism, I try to invite you all to come up and touch the water. We always forget. We are always forgetting who we are in Christ. And if we could just remember for a few minutes a day, it would make such a difference in how we speak and talk and follow in how we love. And it's the Holy Spirit's job, and I believe he's doing this around the clock for all of us to whisper to us, of course, you have issues, you're messed up, but this is stronger. Of course, you're going to sin again, but Jesus has already paid it all. So you can live like it's true. I try to take this so personally, friends, and I forget it all the time, that every email I send out has this tagline at the bottom. It says my name, it says something about Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, and it has these three phrases. Greg DeMay, pastor, sinner, loved by God anyhow. And it's not a positive, a negative, and a positive. I kind of look at it, yeah, I'm a professional Christian, but God loves me anyways. Yeah, I'm a sinner, God loves me anyways. And this is why it's true, because I have been baptized. Have you been to the water lately? Have you heard the Holy Spirit in your life lately reminding you who you are in Christ? Now there's a golf tournament going on right now in Scotland. It's called the Open Championship. There's this young American guy, uh, Jordan Spieth. Incredible golfer this year, this guy's having. He is probably the best putter in the world, and if you don't know anything about golf, once you get your ball on the green, if you're a professional golfer, you get two putts to putt it in the hole. Preferably one. Anything more than two, and you're kind of feeling bad about yourself. Yesterday, Jordan Spieth, potentially the best golfer in the world, took more than two putts to get his ball in the hole five times in 18 holes. That's really bad for a professional golfer. Okay? It's like if you're a professional bike rider falling down five times on the same stage of the Tour de France. Bad news. They interview this 21-year-old kid afterwards, and they ask him about his putting. Are you feeling unconfident? Are you like, why did this happen? And he says something to the effect, very humbly, it was a bad day. I know I'm still one of the best putters in the world. And, you know, I'll do a little work between now and tomorrow, and tomorrow will be a much better day. This is how it should be for us spiritually, okay? 
you might have a day where, in terms of how you behave, you three-putt five times in a day. Okay? But at the end of the day, you can still know. <laughs> Jesus has done something so overwhelmingly bigger than what I did today that it's all going to be okay. Dr. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York, puts it this way. If you are a billionaire and you lose three $10 bills out of your wallet, it's not so bad because you know you have a few billion to back it up. We are spiritual billionaires because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is not a proud or pompous thing to say because we did nothing to deserve it. It's all because of what Jesus did. We are spiritual billionaires. And if in your life, and we're all going to have this, you nick someone or you are nicked yourself, if you are going through sickness or loss or pain, if you are dinged by life, your current sin and indignities are currently, this is going to seem cheap, but it's true, are currently like a single night in a bad hotel compared to the rest of your life. All of our current pain is like just a night in a bad hotel compared to the eternal joy awaiting us in the place that Jesus is right now preparing for those who love him. I don't mean to minimize our pain or losses in this moment because that's all we see and that's all we know right now. But if our spiritual imaginations can just stretch a tiny bit this morning to know how much Jesus has done and is doing right now for us, Oh, that would make a difference. It is up to us to do all we can to tune into the radio station of the Holy Spirit in our life. There's some simple, basic ways to do this. I mean, reading the Bible does this. Having a prayer life does this. Being part of a body, a community does this. Worshiping does this. Yes, yes. I want to, in conclusion, suggest two simple ways to help tune into the work of the advocates uh, in our life. And it's basically by copying or mimicking or em emulating what Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done for us. Two things. Partnering with our two divine advocates. Number one, if you are ever able to share the gospel with another person, it makes the gospel so much more real to you. It's like, you know, if you're learning a musical instrument, it's great to know it, but when you start teaching someone else, you get to a level of mastery. It's great to know that Jesus paid it all for you. It's great to know that you're saved. But if you find a way to share with someone else in your life a glimpse of who Jesus is or how insufferable you are as a person, but that God has been so kind to you anyways, it does a miracle in your own life. It opens you to the radio channel that the Holy Spirit is broadcasting in your life. So don't share Jesus out of guilt. Don't share Jesus because you have to. But share Jesus because you genuinely want to partner with him. And if you have that kind of motivation, I promise you, within two weeks, God will lay some moment of opportunity right in your lap. They're all around us all the time. Second way to partner with God. 
with our divine advocates is to do what the Holy Spirit does and to help call forth someone else's potential. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing when he's whispering to us, Jesus has done everything for you. You are the beloved of God. You have been washed and baptized. God has you here for a purpose. When we can do that, maybe as if you're an older person in a young person's life, or for a colleague or coworker to call forth their noble potential, something amazing happens also for them and within us. For example, I can tell you exactly where I was standing when I was 12 years old, when my pastor at the time said this to me. You know, Greg, I wonder if you would ever consider being a pastor someday. To which I replied, you can't be serious. But he saw something, and he named it, and he did not say, hey, Greg, God is telling me you should be a pastor someday. Right? That's not the way he presented it. He was saying, you know, you should let your crazy adolescent mind wonder, you know, what would it be like to be a pastor someday? It took me more than 10 years to get on board, a dozen years to get on board. But God did something in that moment. And if you sense the Holy Spirit whispering to help name a potential that's within a young person or someone else around you, you can kind of see a spiritual vision you might want to let yourself help them wonder out loud about what they might be. What if you said to your spouse, huh, I wonder what would happen if we shared this with so-and-so. What might happen? What might happen if you said to a co-worker, You know, the way you conducted yourself in that meeting, I really saw the virtue of blank in you. So I received a um, a very precious letter this week, snail mail, from a woman uh, in our church. And she was saying that uh, in a cross-country drive just earlier this month, uh, she was with her daughter driving across the Rocky Mountains, And they were trying to tune into various radio stations. And, of course, because of the mountains, the station is coming in and out. And at one point, they caught, like, 30 seconds of a Christian radio broadcast. And somebody was preaching. And she heard this question. What would you choose? Jesus beside you? Or the Holy Spirit to guide you? And then the radio reception went out. And this woman was like... Tell me the answer. I thought this was kind of providential this week, given that we're talking about these two advocates. If you could only have one, which would you pick? Jesus, right there beside you, like the 11 disciples had, or the Holy Spirit to guide you, as he promised that he would send? Jesus seems to imply that the disciples are going to be better off with him gone, which seems crazy. But Jesus says... Even though I've been with you for three years, you don't really know me yet. It's going to take the Holy Spirit inside you until you really form a relationship with me and before all the lights go on. But this dear woman wrote to me, we heard this question on the radio and I was thinking about it for days and it was causing me all this trouble and then I realized I don't have to choose because I have both. Isn't that beautiful? 
What would you rather have? Jesus beside you or the Holy Spirit to guide you? You don't have to choose if you're following Jesus. We have both. Of all the promises in the Bible, one of the best and brightest and clearest is Jesus' closing words. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This woman who wrote me the letter gets it. She has gotten the Lord's peace. The words I started with, I would like to repeat. Remember, Jesus is saying this, I presume, with tear-stained eyes and a quivering voice. Can you throw it up on the screen? The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And even though we're all anxious and it's not going to be okay before it's finally okay, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. What Jesus shared in that upper room in Jerusalem all those years ago, we will experience because Jesus has promised it. So I can say as a fellow disciple, peace. All will be okay. Peace to you indeed. It's going to be okay. Peace. In everything, in all manner of things in your life, it is going to be okay. In Jesus' name, and because of Jesus' work, and within Jesus' kingdom. Amen. Can you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for trying to make it on our own, for trying to be our own advocate in so many ways. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for the water of baptism. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that frees us and forgives us forever and ever. Thank you for sending the Spirit to whisper inside us and remind us again that we are your chosen and your beloved. Help us to be wise enough to listen to that voice and to arrange our moments and our days so that we can listen to that voice. And then when we hear it, help us live boldly and freely and creatively and crazily for Jesus' sake. In his name.